focus on headline. All right, let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, joining us in the studio today, we have our usual Friday reporters in Lee Ji-young and Chang Anna. Guys, welcome back. Good, Good evening. evening. Good evening to you. We are going to start things off with that Typhoon Kanun, which has, of course, now passed uh, South Korea and uh, moved up northward here. However, uh, as we have been covering yesterday, we had a number of emergency reports that went on throughout our program. Uh, the early reports on the extent of damage are actually quite concerning. This is despite the fact that the government did all they can to prepare uh, for the typhoon. Jiang, let's get the details of the impact that uh, Typhoon Kanun had on us. Oh, sure, SJ. Now, early this morning around 1 a.m., uh, Typhoon Kanun made its way across the demilitarized, uh, demilitarized zone, moving steadily northward. And we're already hearing about 361 cases of damage, including lost embankments and flooded homes. Now, officials from the Central Disaster and Safety Countermeasures Headquarters told reporters that hundreds of public and private facilities have also been affected. Uh, roads, especially in places like Busan and Gyeongsangbuk-do province, are submerged. Now, there are reports of landslides, embankments being lost, and even a bridge that has been taken a hit as well. And houses also haven't been spared either. 30 homes have been flooded, uh, predominantly in Gangwon-do province and in Daegu City. Now, we've got records of three homes damaged and 16 commercial properties also affected. And the total count of facilities damaged is also expected to rise. Yeah, obviously, uh, we did know that uh, this Typhoon Kanun was going to be devastating. We always talk about the facilities that were impacted by this, but uh, all the more concerning are the number of people that may have been affected by uh, this typhoon. Any reports on injuries or maybe even evacuations? Um, sure. Now, the human impact is always, of course, the most concerning. So, so far, thankfully, there haven't been any reports of fatalities, but a significant number of people are on the move, and we're talking about over 15,000 1,800 people from around 11,700 households have been evacuated. Now, this the majority of people who are have been um, evacuated uh, come from the Gyeongsangbuk-do province. So if you're planning to drive around or near that area, you'll see roadblocks everywhere and also uh, several parking lots uh, near river rivers, coasts, and national parks have also been controlled for safety reasons. And while some train lines have resumed after thorough checks, many remain suspended as well. So as this typhoon keeps heading north, residents in its path really need to gear up for some heavy downpours and gusty winds. Uh, places like um, Gangwon and Gyeongsangnam-do province. And they've already seen a ton of rain and it's not letting up anytime soon. Um, so I can't stress uh, enough how important it is for everyone to listen to the official word out there. So if they if you're told to move, then you should get to safer spots immediately. 
Of course, uh, there were earlier reports uh, back uh, that uh, in Tegu, uh, one person died and another person went missing, but they were classified as accidents unrelated to the typhoon. Initial uh, reports uh, said that it was because of the typhoon, but as Chiang said, luckily there hasn't been any fatalities uh, directly linked to the typhoon Kanun. Um, it does seem it will be less concerning from now on, as, like we said, uh, Typhoon Kanun has now weakened to a tropical depression at uh, 80 kilometers southeast of Pyongyang uh, at around uh, 6 a.m. on Friday. I'm sure it's moved up no even more. I'm looking at the, uh, the radar in which it's moved, and it's actually uh, past uh, Pyongyang area. It's actually uh, headed over towards... I believe uh, China is what it is. But again, it's getting weaker and weaker and weaker. Um, but Hannah, is it safe to say that we're completely out of the storm's path, though? Uh, yes, SJ. So there was a lot of concern that the typhoon would hit the Korean peninsula, but it didn't reach the northern and southern ends of the peninsula as initially expected. And it is said that Kanun made landfall with a somewhat weaker force than expected and was unable to maintain its strength as it passed inland and encountered friction with the complex terrain of Korea. However, Kanun did end up being the first typhoon to cross the country from the southeast to northwest from Mount Chiri to Mount Pekdu, the so-called Pekdu Degan mountain range. In fact, this is not the only unique trait of Kanun. In most cases, typhoons typically last for about five days, but Kanun remained for a period three times longer than the average lifespan of a typhoon, making two rapid changes in direction and impacting three countries, which is South Korea, Japan, and Taiwan. Now, the warmer-than-normal waters may have helped Kanun maintain its strength, and the waters around uh, South Korea and Japan alone, the sea surface uh, temperatures are around 29 degrees Celsius, which is about uh, one degree above normal level. And higher sea surface temperatures allow more heat and water vapor to be transported from the ocean to the typhoon, giving it an advantage in maintaining its strength. In fact, sea surface temperatures are currently at records high, and this is all around the world. So hot uh, ocean waters can lead to extreme weather events, which is a major concern for us all. Yeah, I, this Typhoon Kanun, uh, if you guys remember last week when we were talk, initially talking about Typhoon Kanun, uh, the chances of this uh, typhoon particularly hitting the Korean Peninsula was actually relatively low, but there were three different models that were released in where the direction of the Typhoon Kanun was headed, and there was even experts meteorologists had a hard time trying to pinpoint. And mm -hmm. you can see that because the movement, I'm looking at the uh, the total movement of Typhoon Kanun because it went past by the Philippines, uh, and it was headed towards, it seems like it was headed towards Taiwan, and it makes a sharp right and then goes up northward. And even when it hit the Korean Peninsula, it went sort of straight northward. And we, it's, it's kind of rare to see uh, movements like mm -hmm. this. Uh, and so not to mention, uh, you know, even when it was supposed to make landfall on this, uh, the Korean Peninsula, it was moving a lot slower uh, than anticipated as well. Now, there's another typhoon that I was watching uh, as I was doing. I'm looking at radars. I've been looking at radars <laughs> all week this week. And there's another uh, monster of a typhoon headed towards uh, it's the uh, typhoon lan mm -hmm. lan i think it's called uh but uh, for this it seems like it's headed towards uh japan it's really going to hit the, the middle of japan over uh, osaka and kyoto region and uh, it's going to head over towards vladivostok and uh, away from 
the Korean Peninsula. So luckily, we'll be kind of uh, far from this. But again, when it comes to these the, the movements of these typhoons, it's sort of hard to predict ahead mm-hmm. of time. And so we'll keep a close tab on the Typhoon Lan, which seems to be the next uh, uh, tropical storm that we'll be looking at here. Uh, let's move on here. South Korea, the U.S. and Japan have come together to request a meeting of the U.N. Security Council, uh, putting North Korea's human rights issues on the agenda. And this is for the first time in about six years. Uh, Chiang, let's get the details of this. Uh, sure. Now, if this meeting does go ahead uh, as planned next Thursday on the 17th, it will be the first time, as you mentioned, SJ, since 2017 that the U.N. Security Council discusses North Korean human rights violations. Now, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield had some strong words to share. Um, meeting with reporters at the U.N. in New York, she drove home the point that North Korea's human rights Uh, abuses aren't just an isolated issue, that they're intertwined with global peace and security. And she said that protecting people worldwide is fundamental to the UN Charter, and she believes it's high time that the Security Council steps up to hold North Korea accountable. And it's also notable that South Korea, the US, and Japan were not the only nations backing this. Uh, Albania has thrown its weight behind this initiative as well, uh, co-signing the request. Um, Also present during the briefing with Ambassador Thomas Greenfield were Ambassadors Hwang Jung-guk from South Korea and Ishikane Kimihiro from Japan. Now, the U.S. is currently holding the presidency of the Security Council which is an essential role that rotates among member nations monthly, giving them the responsibility of setting the council's agenda and also making some key announcements. Again, but we've always sort of questioned the kind of impact any sort of UN Security Council meetings will have on North Korea, right? Because you have to take into consideration. You have China and uh, Russia as permanent members, and they held the the veto powers. And in fact, historically, I mean, China and Russia, they've haven't been so keen on such discussions before, especially China. There's certain things that China does not want to talk about. It's human rights stuff. Although it's not targeted towards them, uh, I'm sure they're not going to be uh, a big fan of this. And they've expressed strong oppositions to such meetings in the past. Yeah, you're right, SJ. Um, Both nations have, let's say, quote unquote, expressed uh, some reservations about bringing individual countries' human rights matters to the Security Council. Uh, Now, they argue it could ratchet up some tensions on the Korean Peninsula. So it's likely we're going to see this head to a uh, procedural vote. Now, and the interesting thing about this procedural vote is that the big players can't just veto them. Uh, For a topic to be officially adopted as an agenda item, um, at least nine of the 15 member countries need to be in favor. And to give you some context, uh, back in December 2017, 10 countries voted in favor while China, Russia, and Bolivia opposed. That's why it was able to be one of the agendas in the Security uh, Council meeting. Yeah, and so, I mean, that's that's always the big thing is the only time I believe that China and Russia doesn't uh, kind of use their veto power is when uh, North Korea ends up uh, conducting their nuclear test. And so uh, when it comes to, I mean, we've seen it with, you know, the ballistic missile test, right? The intercontinental mm-hmm. ballistic mm-hmm. missile test. I mean, they've always tried to uh, 
uh, slap fresh UN Security Council sanctions on them, and then you know China and Russia is going to veto it. It's the same way with this, and so you kind of have to ask yourselves. I mean, ask them. You know, what's the the point of this? Is it to irk uh, North Korea further? Uh, you know, raise tensions even more on the Korean Peninsula, or is it just a more symbolic and just kind of raise awareness once again? Because it's not like North Korea is going to go in there and say we're sorry, we're going to make changes, and uh, you know, no more human rights violations, and uh, you know, please. Uh, you know, will change. It's, it's not going to happen. So it really is unfortunate because the fact of the matter is there is a dire situation when it comes to uh, North Korean human rights. Uh, moving on here, U.S. Ambassador to Japan, Rahm Emanuel, uh, referring to the upcoming trilateral summit, this between the leaders of South Korea, the U.S. and Japan over at Camp David said, it's expected that a plan will be agreed upon to hold annual joint exercises between three countries now this of course keeping uh, north korea and china in mind and uh, added that this will fundamentally change the strategic environment in the indo-pacific region Hannah, interesting comments here. Tell us mm -hmm. more about this. Sure. Uh, now, South Korea, U.S., and Japan have agreed to hold at least one summit each year. Uh, this is according to Japan's Kyoto News Agency. They reported this on Thursday as the trilateral summit gets underway on August 18th at Camp David near Washington, D.C., hosted by the United States. Now, Nikkei Asia said the three countries could issue joint statements on North Korea's nuclear program, joint cyber defense, and economic security among other issues. Now, the summit, which is being held at the invitation of President Joe Biden, is the first separate summit between the U.S., South Korea, and Japan. The first such meeting was held on the sidelines of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit in November 1994 and has been held on the sidelines of multilateral meetings ever since. Now, the three countries are discussing ways to make the summit a regular event. However, it is understood that final discussions are needed at the top level on how regularly they will meet. Also, moving on here, uh, we know that uh, certainly China is going to be very upset with this whole idea. It seems like uh, this is exactly what uh, the U.S. has wanted. But still, despite this, uh, we are seeing a significant shift in China's travel policy, bringing in new hopes for tourism across the world, uh, especially for South Korea. As you know, uh, before the pandemic, uh, there was a huge shift. If you, you kind of notice it, if you go to Myeongdong, right? Uh, mm -hmm. You had a number of vendors speaking Japanese, trying to get in, uh, uh, you know, tourists, and th that shifted over to all the vendors speaking Chinese mm -hmm. all of a sudden, which shows you uh, how many Chinese tourists uh, used to come to Korea on an annual basis. And it was kind of cut short because of the that issue here. Uh, but they've kind of given a green light to this once again. Uh, certainly going to be. Uh, giving lifting this travel ban that uh, primarily affected the Korean tourism. Jiang, let's get more on this. Uh, sure. Now, after nearly three years since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, China is effectively reopening its borders to group tourism travel. Now, this decision comes um, as a welcome relief for countries around the world and also for South Korea. Now, if we rewind to March 2017, in retaliation, as you mentioned, 
mentioned SJ2, the THAAD missile system deployment by the U.S. in South Korea. China informally banned group tours to South Korea. While it was never officially declared, uh, travel agencies stopped selling group packages, leading to a noticeable decline in Chinese tourists visiting South Korea. So now they're opening, uh, now they're reopening. Uh, China's Ministry of Culture and Tourism have announced that group tours will be permitted to to 78 countries, including South Korea, the United States, Japan, and several others spanning Asia, North and South America, Europe, Oceania, Africa, which is a significant step toward normalization. And the Chinese media is also buzzing with interest. Now, right after the announcement, uh, there was a reported 20-fold increase in searches for overseas travel packages on Trip, which is one of China's top online travel agencies. Now, the peak travel times around uh, China's National Day on October 1st seems to be the most popular. So we're uh, going to have to be kind of bracing for a huge Chinese tourism uh, coming to Korea because... October's right around the corner. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting because uh, yesterday, as soon as this news broke out, a number of uh, hotel uh, hotel stocks skyrocketed, mm-hmm. uh, duty-free stocks skyrocketed, uh, makeup companies skyrocketed. I think even with makeup uh, today, uh, it still went up uh, quite a bit because you know th- those are one of the things that are going to go up now that Chinese tourists are going to come it's in. Huge right? consumption mm-hmm. in the oh, Chinese market. That's absolutely, right. Absolutely, absolutely. And so it really is going to help us out quite a bit. But the big question is, what about the other way around? Is there any ease for those wanting to travel to China? Oh, well, that's a great question, SJ. Yes, in fact, there is some easing on that front too. Uh, South Koreans will find it slightly easier to get a visa to China. Now, the Chinese embassy in South Korea has announced the suspension of the fingerprinting process for certain visa categories until the end of this year. So uh, we're going to be uh, hinting a little bit more easing, but it's not one, it's not going to be pre-thawed times at the moment. Now, the South Korean Foreign Ministry's deputy spokesperson mentioned that South Korea and China recognize the importance of boosting people-to-people exchanges and have been in communication about these developments. So the South Korean government is also uh, open arms in this decision as well. Oh my goodness, the fingerprinting process is something that was forced... I got fingerprinted. What's going on here? I mean, is it because I'm in America? Do they not trust Americans anymore? I got fingerprinted when I was even going to Jeju. And then uh, what was it? When I went to London, they fingerprinted me as well in Korea. Uh, So... I didn't know. I thought this was like a norm. I didn't know they're changing all the all of this. But here's the thing, though, right? Um, it's weird. In, I mean, it's great. It's great that we're going to get an inflow of Chinese tourists. Obviously, it is going to boost the economy, the tourism sector. And as we've talked about before, during the uh, the height of the COVID nineteen pandemic, I mean, you go to Myeongdong, it was a ghost town. A number mm-hmm. of you have to also take into consideration that of of all the places in Korea, I believe. Real estate prices are the most expensive in Myeongdong, uh, mm-hmm. and as you know, for many of these uh, store owners, it's uh, they were unable to uh, afford rent, and so a lot of them closed down. And so now they're going to see a reopening. I think Myeongdong is now opened up uh, already, but an inflow of Chinese tourists is obviously a good thing. But you would think that 
because it seems like uh, the Chinese government has not been so happy with the South Korean government kind of, you know, warming up to the United States and Japan as well. And it seems like they're kind of isolating China, that they would continue uh, to put this travel ban in uh, South Korea. But it's the other way around. So. Hannah, do we know what's behind all this? Because they have also announced uh, not just to South Korea, but as ji said, 78 countries mm-hmm. have been given the green light on this. Yeah, so I'm just going to be adding on to ji report, and it seems that the announcement signaled China's complete shift to the so-called with corona, or its way of saying that the pandemic has ended and shifted to an endemic. And this is a shout to the rest of the world. And it is being interpreted as a strategy to stimulate the economy through increased consumption and boost goodwill toward its own country. Now, China's decision to allow more group tourism for its own citizens was long overdue. China allowed group tours to 20 countries, including Thailand, Indonesia, and Cambodia in January. And shortly after scrapping its uh, strict zero-COVID quarantine policy, it did the same for 40 countries, and this including Vietnam, Mongolia, Spain, and Italy in March. Now, it was a matter of timing as the country transitioned back to normalcy. However, experts note the timing of allowing more citizens to travel to other countries in the form of group group tours. It is believed that the main reason for the move is to stimulate the economy by boosting consumption, as Xiong mentioned. And with recent economic data pointing to a Japanese-style prolonged recession and concerns about deflation rising, the government chose to open up the tourism industry, which has a large economic impact. Now, this argument is bolstered by the fact that the announcement includes all of China's favorite travel destinations, including the U.S., U.K., and Germany, as well as South Korea and Japan, which were excluded from the first and second tier of group tourism permits. And there are also observers who believe that it is intended to create an atmosphere of vigorous people-to-people exchanges ahead of the Hangzhou Asian Mm. Games, which begin next month on the 23rd, and thereby build a sense of goodwill toward China. And now the inclusion of South Korea in the group tourism list is also expected to improve relations between the two countries, something that has been a long time coming. Yeah, I guess it's not, again, that's, you know, because yesterday when I read the news for the very first mm-hmm. time, the, the headline was a little bit misleading because it was basically like it's it's only to South Korea that they've greenlighted these group mm-hmm. tourism, right? <laughs> but uh, it's actually on everything else. Mm-hmm. But yes, uh, we have to take into consideration that the Hangzhou Asian Games and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, these uh, major international sporting events, is it's, it's a good opportunity for people to come to the country and there's a lot of money going in and so mm-hmm. forth. But the other way around, uh, people-to-people exchanges. I mean, this is... Uh, one of the things that I think gets overlooked quite a bit, and uh, hopefully once again, uh, as uh, South Korea's uh, tourism sector is still on a rebound right now, I believe it's only reached like 60-something percent of pre-pandemic levels, uh, tourists coming in this year. And so hopefully uh, the inflow of Chinese group tourists uh, will boost the uh, tourism sector uh, once again. Uh, Speaking of which, uh, let's talk about the economy. The South Korean government saying that they're going to be seeing emerging signs that its economy may be recovering from the prolonged slowdown. Uh, Ji-young, can you tell 
tell us more about the government's newly released findings. Uh, sure. Now, after months of concern over sluggish uh, economy, uh, the South Korean government is now seeing some light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, they believe the downturn is starting to ease, uh, driven by improved exports and a boost in economic sentiment. Now, it's been about six months since the government government labeled the economic situation as a persistent downturn. Uh, but now, for the first time since the declaration, they're using language that suggests an alleviation of that downturn. Now, to share some of the numbers in terms of exports, um, exports have, in fact, been a key indicator. Uh, last month, they recorded a decrease of 16.5% year-on-year to about 50 0.33 billion U.S. dollars. Now, the daily average uh, exports also reduced by the same percentage, percentage, but there's a silver lining. Now, despite the de decrease in imports by 25.4%, the trade balance recorded a surplus of 1.3%. 63 billion US dollars. Now, this marks the second consecutive months of surplus after 16 months. Now, other indicators like the current account and retail sales also have shown some positive signs. A 5.87 billion surplus was recorded for June's current uh, account and retail sales in June also rose, hinting a domestic demand resurgence. Now, consumer sentiment is also so showing some signs of positive. Uh, now, the consumer sentiment index rose to 103.2 and a key economic predictor also climbed to 988 in June as well. And also jobs are on the rise as well. 211,000 more jobs year on year. But the thing is that a lot of these jobs that increased were uh, due to uh, less permanent roles instead temporary of the, jobs. Yeah, temporary jobs instead of the permanent roles that we, um, especially youngsters, are looking for these days. And also good news is that we've also been seeing a slowdown in inflation as well. Consumer prices increased by 2.3% year on year, which is the smallest rise in over two years. Yeah, so I mean, the target is, I believe, the Bank of Korea's target is 2%, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're very close to that. But the, despite the fact that I, there's still signs of uh, increasing the uh, the key interest rates, which I, it's, it's, I don't understand why, when right now Korea, I believe, compared to some of the other major economies, the inflation is relatively low. But going back to the jobs, though, it's still very much concerning. You can say 211 more jobs year on year added. But again, every time we break down the numbers, majority of those jobs that were added for those are in their 60s, temporary jobs, part-time jobs. And those that have lost the jobs are those in their 20s the 30s and 40s and these are of course those that drive up the uh, the country's economy so hopefully uh, the the job market is a little bit rosier moving forward here uh moving on here ron on thursday uh placed five americans under house arrest in its prisons because the move follows an agreement uh, with the united states to negotiate a prisoner swap uh, with iran 
reportedly set to eventually release the Americans once their frozen uh, assets in South Korea are released. We've talked about these frozen assets of $6 billion uh, in South Korea. Hannah, tell us more about this. Sure. Uh, now, the Iranian government has confirmed that five Americans uh, wrongfully detained in Iran have been released and placed under house arrest. This was according to the White House National Security Council, and they said this in a statement on behalf of its spokesperson. Now, five Americans have been placed under house arrest, as SJ mentioned. They were previously held in Tehran's Evin prison, known for its harsh treatment for alleged spies. Now, the NSC was coy about the specifics of the negotiations, saying that negotiations for their eventual release are ongoing and sensitive at this time. Nevertheless, the deal includes releasing Iranian funds frozen by U.S. sanctions, including funds frozen in South Korea, funds in Iraq's TBI bank, and funds in Europe. Now, the New York Times also reported that the U.S. has agreed to free Iranian funds frozen in South Korea in exchange for the release of Americans imprisoned in Iran, as well as the release of some Iranians imprisoned in the United States. In fact, the five Americans were transferred to a third location outside the prison for the prisoner swap, and it believes that it would not be released until the funds were transferred to an account designated by Iran. Now, the Qatari government played a key role in reaching the deal, and the detained Americans Americans are expected to be transferred to Doha, which is Qatar's capital for now. The United States will release a handful of Iranians held in the U.S. on charges, including violating U.S. sanctions against Tehran when the last American detained in Iran is released, sources told the New York Times. But the Biden administration's deal is likely to be strongly challenged by the Republican Party, U.S. media reported. And this is because the frozen funds could end up in the hands of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, the so-called IRGC, and be used to support militants in the Middle East. And in response, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said, We will continue to enforce all sanctions and respond decisively to Iran's activities that destabilize the region and beyond. That's right. And uh, this whole uh, issue with uh, the frozen assets, uh, I, I, I'm always kind of confused with this. I, I think there's some reports saying that uh, some $7 billion of Iranian assets uh, have been uh, frozen at the Industrial Bank of Korea and the Uri Bank since uh, September 2019. And this was because of, you know, sanctions, U.S. sanctions targeting uh, Iran's nuclear program. And this was really intensified, by the way, by the uh, former Trump administration. Uh, there were initially some reports that said it was like $6 billion U.S. dollars, but I believe it's gone up. It's about $7 billion. But nevertheless, Jiang, let's talk about what led to these decisions. Mm, well, the U.S. and Iran have been at the negotiation table. Uh, and as a part of those talks about getting Americans out of uh, Iranian jails, the U.S. has nodded for South Korea to pay back the oil money they owe, which is the same money that's been on ice since Trump uh, slapped those 2019 sanctions on Iran. Now, at the moment, uh, the funds are 
in euros situating in Qatar and they're actually being ready to wired to be wired. Now, these funds represent payments for Iranian oil imports. Now, with the unfreezing, Iran can use them for overseas remittances uh, remin- uh, or payments. Now, the there's also speculations that this might open discussions about resuming Iranian oil imports to South Korea, given the current instability in global oil prices. Now, there are also some concerns about releasing such a large amount. Now, if Iran were to quickly uh, pull out uh, the money, uh, it might shake up the value of the South Korean currency. But that's seen as a remote possibility at this moment because it doesn't really benefit Iran. And remember, South Korea used to lean into Iranian oil since it was uh, more pocket-friendly, especially the the condensant type. But the South Korean government really hasn't commented on um, on this news, and they really haven't officially confirmed any of the details, uh, citing protections under the real name Financial Transaction Act. Yeah, I mean, again, there's like a couple of interesting things with this is, number one, it's been frozen since, was it uh, 2019? And so it's been frozen for roughly around almost four years now. And Mm -hmm. so now Iran's going to be like, well, you know, there's four years that you didn't give us our money back. Uh, What about the interest that can come from this? But South Korea was kind of in the middle of this and... You have to say, South, it's not like South Korea was going, well, we're not going to give you the money. We have your money. We're not going to give you the money. Uh, it was because of the U.S. sanctions, right? I believe there was a number of cases where Iran uh, did not, I forgot which particular incident it was. Oh, I, yes. It was uh, when one of the uh, the ships uh, were inter- was intercepted by Iran uh, near the, uh, the Strait of Hormuz right. was what it was. Yeah. And I think Iran was kind of saying, that there was some environmental issues yeah. at hand. There was like a leakage of oil or like a leakage Pretty of chemical. Pretty much keeping it hostage yeah, yeah. For, for the money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so like, you know, mm. South Korea, I think they were like, listen, look, we're not trying to steal your money here. We mm-hmm. can't send this over because you have the U.S. sanctions uh, in place. And you got to talk to U.S. about this because, sure, we want to give you this money. But if we do end up sending this money, we're also then breaching U.S. security, uh, U.S. sanctions. And we might be slapped with something here. We can't do it. So South Korea is kind of in the middle here. And, you know, if this does go through, finally go through, I mean, you know, South Korea is finally going to be off that hook. Uh, and it's been a long time coming. Let's just put it at that. Uh, staying with some issues over the United States, uh, looking at the consumer prices, uh, it rose slightly more in July than they did back in June. Uh, but the pressure to slow inflation remains, uh, according to the latest report by, I believe, the, the Labor Department. Uh, Hannah, let's get mm-hmm. the latest figures on this. Sure. Uh, now, the U.S. Consumer Price Index rose 3.2% year over year in July, according to the Labor Department on Thursday. While the rate of increase was, again, a bit steeper than June's rate, which was 3.0%, it is hard to see the decline in inflation as a reversal 
reversal of the upward trend given the magnitude of the slowdown in June. Earlier, consumer prices rose 3.0% year-over-year in June, slowing the pace of growth from May by one percentage point. And this was largely driven by U.S. consumer price inflation, which peaked at 9.1% last June. The continued slowdown in inflation is also supported by the month-on-month growth and core inflation. In fact, the month-over-month increase in July was 0.2%, the same as the increase in June. Now, excluding volatile energy and food, core CPI growth was 4.7% year-over-year in July, which was weaker than in June, suggesting a continued slowdown in inflation. And on a month-over-month basis, core inflation was 0.2%, the same as in June. Now, the core CPI growth rate, which shows the underlying trend in prices, is a key indicator for the Federal Reserve alongside the Consumer Price Index. Meanwhile, while inflationary pressures continue to slow, it is unlikely that the Fed will shift its policy toward lowering rates in the near future. In fact, in a July press conference, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell said that U.S. inflation remains well above the Fed's 2% target and that getting inflation back to 2% is a long process. And with the rate hike in July, the U.S. benchmark interest rate now stands at 5.25% to 5.5% per annum, the highest level since 2001. Yeah, but I guess like the latest number, despite the fact that, again, it's like a slight acceleration Mm -hmm. is what there's saying it's still overall a uh, you're seeing the inflation figures go down and they've already raised the uh, the key interest rates last time uh, what was it uh, back in July you said uh, I think now the consensus the market consensus is that come September I believe they have the FOMC mm-hmm. uh, meeting coming up uh, they're probably gonna freeze it uh, which is why I think the the uh, the, the markets uh, they're sort of uh, showing some positive uh, returns on the market because of the news of this. But the big question now is even if they do freeze it uh, come September, and then I believe the last FOMC meeting of the year is going to be in December, uh, because they said there might be another hike one more time uh, this year around. It's you know whether or not they're actually going to go with this. Or are we going to see more downtick in the inflations over in the U.S.? We'll have to see. And the reason why we keep saying this is because that the interest gap between you know the, the U.S. Fed and the Bank of Korea continues to widen, and eventually it's going to take a toll. And of course, the dollar is going to eventually be that much stronger against the mm-hmm. Korean one. Nevertheless, guys, thank you very much for your updates today. Have a safe weekend, and we'll see you guys again next week. Thank, thank you. you. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.